Good morning, church. Good morning. I uh, told Rob this week, this is the first time in several years I've had to like pick out an outfit two Sundays in a row because uh, I get to join you up here again. I'm normally wearing the blue shirt with the hospitality team, uh, but I'm excited to continue uh, talking with you about uh, this All Together Now series. Uh, and this morning, I was hoping we could do a little self-evaluation, a little um, self-reflection before we get started. Nothing too hard, but you know, please self-identify, maybe raise a hand or like jab your spouse with an elbow or something, uh, if, if these apply to you. Please self-identify uh, if you are one of those people that has to get all of the groceries from the car into the house in one trip. Uh, yeah, I see some hands. How about if you are one of those people who tries to put together furniture or toys without assembling or without consulting the directions? How about like if you've had to undo some stuff to consult the directions and try, yeah, there's some humility in the room. Have you ever spent like four times longer than you needed looking for an item in the store because you just didn't want to ask a store employee where it was? There's a whole row of people over there that just raised their hand to that one. I don't know when it starts in us, but there is something about people that it is really hard for us to ask for help. My daughter is about 15 months old. It happened early uh, for her, bless me. Uh, we completely skipped the pureed food stage, partially uh, because Isla didn't like any of it, uh, but logistically because she insisted that she had to be the one to hold the spoon. She can't hold the spoon. Um, and so uh, she refused to let us feed her off the spoon, and so uh, that didn't go very well. And so that's still the case. Right now she tries to put her own socks and shoes on, even though she absolutely does not have the dexterity to do that at 15 months old. And recently, finally, she got tall or agile enough to climb up on the couch by herself. Oh, the freedom. Those of you who have seen her in the commons know this is quite a feat because she's always been like several inches shorter than all the other kids her age. And so that's what we do now. We climb up and down, on and off the couch by ourselves because she doesn't need my help but really that's an illusion. Isla has never not needed my help, uh, no matter what she tries to convince herself of as she enters toddlerhood. But that's really true of us, uh, too, all of us. Michael Downey says the human person is not an individual, not a self-contained being who at some stage of life chooses or elects to be in relationship with another or others. From the very first moments of existence, the infant is toward the other, ordinarily the mother or the father, who is in turn toward and for the infant. From our origin, he says, we are related to others. We are from others, by others, toward others, for others, just as it is in God to exist in the relations of interpersonal love. Last week, we began with the truth that God is a community of love, that accepting this is foundational to grasping who God is and how he designed us in his image. God is in relationship that cannot be separated or broken. He is a relational being, and he desires and extends the invitation of that relationship to us. This is good news. 
which means then that we were designed in the very depths of our souls and ourselves and the very aspect of our personhood for relationship, both with God and with others. So we're going to pick up where we left off last week, in the garden. In Genesis 1, God creates man and woman in the imago Dei, in the image of God. And then chapter 2 details the narrative of the creation of Adam in a little more detail. And so God creates Adam, and it is not three seconds later, in verse 18, that God declares it is not good for man to be alone. And he pledges to make him a suitable partner. Now, God has called everything in the creation story good up to this point. When we get to the creation of humans, it is very good. God has outdone himself. But verse 18 gives us the first glimpse that something is wrong. The fall hasn't happened yet. Sin hasn't poisoned any divine design in the garden. But the design isn't complete yet. It isn't good if Adam is alone. Now this man had direct access to God. He got to commune with God in the garden. He was given divine purpose from God to care for creation. But he wasn't designed for relationship with God alone. He needed others to most accurately reflect the imago Dei, the image of God, and to live in community as God lives in community. So God creates a whole other person, Eve, with the purpose that they would get to serve together. And now Adam isn't alone. But church, we know uh, what happens next. Genesis 3 continues the narrative to the fall. Adam and Eve rebelled against God and sin enters the story. In verse 8, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man, Where are you? They hid from him. God invited Adam and Eve into relationship with him. He walked with them in the cool of the garden. But they chose something else. Call it their own desire for control, for independence, whatever. But because of their disobedience, Adam and Eve are banished from the garden, and humanity is, like, kind of doomed. So, we're done. Um, So, I'm actually going to stop for a second, because we're spending a lot of time this month talking about how we were designed for relationship with each other, which is true. But our relationships with others are incomplete without our relationship with God. When Adam and Eve left the garden, God concocted a rescue plan to bridge the damage that was done and to bring us back to himself so that we could be in relationship that we were designed for. He did this by sending Jesus, a part of the Godhead, to live among us and willingly sacrifice himself to save us from ourselves because we are truly doomed without God, this community of love. And so if you have never responded to God's invitation of relationship, uh, if this is new information to you, like that's where it starts. Please lean in. Talk to an online host. Grab somebody after service. Because a relationship with God is foundational to everything else we're going to talk about. God changes us. 
The life that he invites us to is so often counter to our nature or the way culture um, operates, but it's so much better. And our life in community is no exception to this because God designed us for community. But there's a lot that pulls us away from living in the fullness of that design. So we have to actively choose as the church community and relationship uh, and unlearn some other stuff along the way. So for me, college was a season that I really got to see what it was like to live in community with other believers. I went to a very small Bible college, um, and some lessons about community were easier to learn than others. And it was my very first day as a resident advisor, my junior year of college. I and uh, my partner, we had 40 girls on our floor, 20 of whom were incoming freshmen. And it was move-in day for the new students. Now, earlier that summer, I had surgery on my ankle, and I was still unable to put weight on it, so I found myself in like a little wheelchair on this move-in day uh, so that I could maneuver around, meet the new students and their parents, and, uh, you know, not get tired huffing and puffing all over everybody. Um, So at this point, I should mention our residence hall was on the third floor of the building. And for some reason unknown to me, um, some student was already doing laundry like four minutes after they got to campus. And they failed to empty the lint trap. So you can kind of see where this is going. Uh, When the fire alarm goes off in our building, a great safety feature uh, is that our single elevator automatically drops to the bottom floor and stays there with the doors propped open, which is great, except I'm on the third floor of the building in a wheelchair. So I encourage the families to evacuate. You know, we don't know if there's a fire. We just need to figure out what's going on. Wait outside. It's really loud anyway, the alarm. But since it's move-in day, I am now unable to get down the hallway because of all the moving carts and the suitcases that have been kind of abandoned. Uh, And I don't have any crutches at this point. And so as a person who is trying to convey a sense of, you know, calm professionalism and adulthood, I am really not landing that image in front of these freshman parents. Which is totally solidified, as my roommate uh, has to give me a piggyback ride down three flights of stairs and lay me in the grass like a baby sheep (laughs) until the fire department clears us to come in, return to the building, and somebody else can go get me a wheelchair and get me back into the building. So it was was a funny picture. I laughed along. Uh, It's you know, one of those college stories, but internally, something else was going on. I was kind of frustrated in myself, and I mean, really, I was pretty embarrassed. For some reason, I had this idea in my mind that if I was in charge of other people, and if I was responsible for their needs, I couldn't have any needs of my own. I had to be able to hide and or solve my own problems to have this effortless exterior image of being in control and self-sufficiency. That's what I wanted. And it's something I've strived for and failed at numerous times in my life. So why does it feel so shameful when we have to rely on other people? Because it does. I mean, for us in the American church today, our culture, our society haven't done us any favors in really understanding how to live communally and vulnerably with one another. In America, one of our defining traits is individualism. This became a core part of our ideology by the 1800s, and it was quickly infused with elements of social Darwinism. Survival of the fittest. We want to be self-sufficient, independent, 
autonomous, unique. Our society puts a lot of value on personal achievement and individual rights. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps and figure it out. Like, you know, don't let them see you cry. So whether we admit it or not, being dependent rather than being self-reliant is embarrassing. And I think this colors our perspective maybe more than we think it does when we, as the church, then try to consider topics like relationship and like community. We're kind of at a disadvantage. Not all cultures operate the way that we do. America is actually the most individualistic country in the world, according to research data. Number one. On the opposite side, though, uh, is collectivism. So people that live in societies that are more focused on collectivism are part of in-groups, uh, like extended families, these strong social ties that still care for and depend on one another. And decisions are then made based on what is best for the group rather than the individual, rather than the one. I tried to explain this to my husband over the weekend uh, as we played Settlers of Catan with some friends. He, refusing to trade any resources unless someone, uh, unless it specifically met his own needs, and I explained to him that I would have a word for him on Sunday from the Lord. See, because the rest of us were taking a more collective approach of trading as we helped each other get the cards that we needed and, you know, kind of work through the game. And it's funny, but I mean, in our spiritual family, that posture is kind of closer to God's design. In 1 Corinthians 10, uh, it reminds us that no one should seek their own good, but the good of others. And it's possible, because of the high value placed on individualism, uh, that George Gallup, he's quoted saying, Americans are the loneliest people in the world. We're individuals. Even before COVID-19, experts had uh, declared an epidemic of loneliness in our societies. Loneliness has doubled since the 1980s, and in 2019, pre-pandemic, 35% of Americans were experiencing chronic loneliness. 35% before the last year and a half happened to us. In the 80s, adults on average had uh, three close friends or confidants. Today, 25% of people report having zero. That doesn't mean that you, know, you don't have any friends if you're experiencing chronic loneliness. The uh, 2004 cult classic, my description, uh, movie, A Cinderella Story, starring Hilary Duff, Let's see how many people in the room actually connect with what I'm about to say. Um, Austin Ames is the name of the movie's Prince Charming. He's a stereotypical, ultra-popular, captain of the football team, leading man. He is constantly the center of attention. He has tons of friends. But in an email to Duff's character, he laments, I can be surrounded by a sea of people and still feel all alone. And this isn't an original thought. There are books and songs and movies with all sorts of seemingly shiny, happy people experiencing the same thing. You may have a lot of people in your life, but no close friends. Maybe nobody really gets you. Maybe you struggle to have conversations with people and connect with them beyond things that are on the surface level. These are examples of what loneliness looks like. In his book, uh, Creating Community, Andy Stanley points out the consequences of not living in relationship, aside from loss of perspective, fear of intimacy, and increased selfishness, all of which are incredibly damaging to our souls. 
there is also a physical health toll. Loneliness has been repeatedly compared to the effects of smoking 15 cigarettes a day. Chronic loneliness has clear link to health issues, including heart disease, anxiety, and dementia. John Ortberg refers to this study on relationship that tracked 7,000 people over nine years. And researchers found that the most isolated people were three times more likely to die than those with strong social ties. People who had bad health habits like smoking, uh, poor eating, obesity, uh, alcohol use, but strong social ties lived significantly longer than people who had great health habits but were isolated. John Ortberg says, again, I wish I wrote this, uh, John Ortberg says, in other words, it is better to eat Twinkies with good friends than to eat broccoli alone. <laughs> and that is the word for us today from the Lord. We are, we are done. Our individualism is a problem, physically, socially, and spiritually. And so when we talk about community, it's really easy to talk about, but for some reason then for us, it's incredibly difficult to obtain. But we must. Church, it's how we were designed. The book uh, Ministry in the Image of God explains when you believed in Christ, whether you were aware of it or not, you entered into the fellowship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and the fellowship of every other Christian who is a part of that triune fellowship. I know some of you are looking for the fine print on that baptism certificate, like, hold on. Now you belong to everyone else who belongs. Your faith may be individual, but it's not personal except in relationship. In fact, you are only truly you in relation to others. He goes on to say, though people long for community, many are unwilling to count the cost necessary for it. This is counter to kind of how we function in our own society, in our own families, in our own um, world today. But the idea that we don't need one another, like that we belong to and account for only ourselves, that is not the kingdom of God. But when we are in a place then, when we're ready to seek out community, it can be really difficult. It's harder than we think. A lot of times we get stuck with Austin Ames. We have a lot of friends, full calendar, lots of social plans, mile wide, inch deep. It doesn't fill us. M. Scott Peck was a psychologist. He posed an outline of kind of his template of what to expect when strangers get together and form community. Now, not just strangers like believers trying to form a small group, uh, but just any type of community. And he says they go through four distinct phases, the first of which is called pseudo-community. And I believe this is the most dangerous where we most often find ourselves in the church. He says the essential dynamic of pseudo-community is conflict avoidance. Members are extremely pleasant with one another and avoid all disagreement. People wanting to be loving withhold some of the truth about themselves and their feelings in order to avoid conflict or judgment or rejection. This is the shiny, happy people stage. I think in small groups it kind of goes like this. You meet your new group and you are on your best behavior. You lecture your kids about being normal on the car ride over. Or you're hosting and you clean the whole 
house, uh, like floors no one is even going to go to, and you'd like get rid of and buy all new furniture. Like you are ready. And everyone is trying really hard to make a good impression and to make it work. Everybody's cordial, and there's nothing wrong with this. There's nothing wrong with this intention and with this desire. But true community can't form at this level because it's not real. So then you move to stage two, uh, which is called chaos. It's a word many of you use to describe your current small group, but not in this way. Uh, in the summary, this phase gets complicated and uncomfortable because the differences about us start to emerge. And I think we need a lot of practice being in community with people who are different than us. So you start actually paying attention maybe to the other people in your group and deciding like if you like them, you know what I'm saying? Like maybe they don't parent the way you do. Maybe they don't vote the way you do. Maybe they talk too much or too little in group discussion. Maybe just like the way their voice sounds is annoying to you. I don't know. And then you kind of get in your head, you're thinking maybe everybody else is connecting better than I am and you are tempted to bail. It's just easier. <laughs> but if you keep going, you move to stage three, which is called emptiness. <laughs> Woo, sign me up. This one, however, is actually the most crucial because it, the emptiness refers to emptying ourselves of barriers to communication. Members start getting real about not having it all together and not having it figured out. And then other members stop trying to fix them, which is great. And this could be, you know, a member of a group who's just naturally in touch with their own emotions and vulnerability, less likely, uh, or more likely for someone in the group, life gets too real and the mask falls off. When crisis happens in your life, it's an opportunity for the people around you to become your community. The unexpected loss of a parent, the decimation of a marriage, the relapse, the miscarriage, the devastating health diagnosis, or the job loss, the, the thing outside of your control that messes you up enough to shake you out of the illusion that you are in control and have it all figured out. Because when one person gets real, others then get to start following through that open door of vulnerability and getting real about themselves. In this, uh, the differences of the chaos stage, they start to feel less important because you're you know, investing in the other people's actual lives. And that opens us up to stage four, which is true community. Uh, Peck describes it as both joyful and realistic which I just really like. The group learns and practices laying down self and really listening and supporting one another, which helps us then to be real and to get deep, which we need if we're growing as disciples of Jesus. John Mark Comer states, there is no community in the way of Jesus without vulnerability and accountability. See, one of the beautiful things about God is that he accepts us just as we are, but he has no intention of letting us stay that way. And so community in the body of Christ is built around supporting one another and loving one another so that we can grow together as disciples. We need to be accepted and loved. It's true. We need to be accepted and loved. And we also need to be challenged and to be held accountable. And true community can do both of those things. Because we can't be held accountable without vulnerability, 
Uh, nobody would know what the heck is really going on in your life. Like, why are you the way that you are? Uh, but to be vulnerable, we have to be able to trust our community not to judge us or shame us. And I believe we're able to do that when our community is also practicing vulnerability back with us. David Brooks is a secular author. He defines community as love-drenched accountability. And how much more so in the way of Jesus? Let's see, our communities on this side of heaven are always going to have an element of the human condition. Like, that's true. But God does have a high bar for what we are supposed to be striving for. Last week, we touched on John 17, and I'm going to turn there again. Uh, as Jesus is praying before his arrest, he is likely uh, in the upper room or en route to the Garden of Gethsemane. And for a guy who prayed a lot, we don't have a lot of documented prayers of Jesus where we get to read what he prayed. But in John 17, this is one of his longest uh, recorded prayers, and there are three sections to this prayer. Jesus prays to be glorified. Jesus prays for his disciples, and Jesus prays for future believers. What we see here in this prayer is actually a lot of comparison of the Father's relationship with the Son to believers' relationship with one another. And looking at this prayer, Andy Stanley uh, says that one of God's biggest dreams for us is authentic community. And so let's keep that in mind and dig in. First, Jesus prays for glory. This section is, again, evidence of the relationship of the Trinity, which we talked about last week. Jesus prays, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. He goes on, and now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Jesus is reminding us of the nature of the Trinity here. Glad submission is on full display here between the Father and the Son, this God who is a community of love. He continues to a section where he prays for his disciples, those who are with him. Verse 10 says, All I have is yours and all you have is mine. The glory has come to me through them, his disciples. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. Jesus asked that these disciples remain unified in community as he does with the Father. Like that is the standard. God desires our unity, our community, to reflect the community between the Father and the Son. And he then pivots his prayer uh, for those who will come to believe. Did you know that Jesus prayed for you? We have it right here. Because Jesus knows the disciples are going to spread his gospel and that more will come to know God and accept his invitation for relationship. And so he prays for the future believers. He prays for us. Verse 20, my prayer is not for them alone, his disciples. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That's us. That all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one. I and them and you and me so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Church family, 
God's plan for us is to experience true community with him and with one another so that we reflect him and so we may come to a deeper love and understanding of him. And in verse 23, so that a watching world may also know the love of God and come to know Jesus through our witness and through our example. And this is no light assignment. In the weeks ahead, we're going to continue and we're going to see what it looks like to live this out because true community takes work. We are so often distracted by our watered down and empty versions of life together and our own trauma or loneliness or pride can chain us in isolation. But there is support, joy, fullness, family waiting for you like you were designed to be a part of. Church, we've been talking about the nature of God and community and his design for us to be in community as well. And it's hard to get there, but there is richness in getting to do life together. We want to show you a glimpse of that um, through one of our small groups. So check it out. We wanted to... um get into a small group to be able to be more personable and know people and go to church and see people's faces that you recognize and say, hey, how's it going? How's your week been? And catch up with people and really feel that community feel of the bigger church and the small church. It was a little daunting at first to really feel involved in the church. We didn't really know anybody, so we did it more so we could meet more people. The reason why we joined a small group is to connect and grow and let our daughter be able to grow with uh, younger kids as well. It's hard enough to make friends as grown-ups, and when you can do it and feel comfortable with everybody. We're all different types of people, and I, I think we feed on that. We never felt like we were on the outside. We never felt like a third wheel. They just kind of like took us in, and, and now they feel more like family rather than just friends. I mean, we've been there for uh, times of loss in our group and times of uh, new babies and doing the food train. Alone from having to bring a newborn home and then not being able to have family or somebody come over and help with a toddler, uh, both of the Amandas took it on themselves to set up a meal train and it was nice for two weeks that like dinner was there. It's good to have that kind of community to like, wow. That's really awesome that they picked up on the fact that I was going through a, a hard time and they're here for us. Getting the help makes you want to help others. And just knowing that you have somebody that'll sit with you, pray with you, listen to your work week, and truly understand what you're going through. you got a sounding board, you know, as you're raising a kid. Occasionally some of the older kids will come into our discussion and participate. I like getting to learn about God and playing with my cousins and friends. And they see us fellowshipping and communing and learning about God together too. I think it's good for them to see their parents being a part of that so that it's, it's just normal to them as they get older. Just keep being in a small group um, just to help myself and my family grow. It's kind of like a constant for you. It's kind of, you know, you look forward to it every week of seeing, you know, kind of gets you some normalcy to your chaotic week sometimes. 
even though it could be chaotic, but it's still, it's kind of a grounding point for you. We want to be a part of other people's life in, within our church. We want to be a part of uh, growing together and making sure that we're continuing to grow and do what God wants us to do. I don't want to uh, embarrass them, but several of the people from that group were in the room, and I just really liked watching them watch that for the first time. They were just, couldn't help but kind of smile and crack up through it, because it's fullness. It brings richness to our lives. So uh, if you've been maybe putting it off long enough, let's have a conversation. I want to help you find your community of people in this church family. So if you are ready to do that, you can go to outlookchurch.org groups. You can fill out the form. It goes straight to me and gives me indication that I should reach out and we should have a conversation because God didn't intend for us to do this life alone. He went actually to great lengths to display his mercy, to display his grace, and to call us his own. But we don't get to fully experience that without one another. So let's continue to seek true community and grow together. In church, it is... uh, just a gift to be able to worship and to fellowship together today. So will you stand with me and let's sing.